Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, I am happy to announce that all of our websites have now been moved to a dedicated server at a new hosting company. And hopefully things will now settle out a bit on the technological front so that I can get back to doing these podcasts. And uh, I want to be sure to thank uh, those fellow saloners who either bought one of my books or who made a direct donation to the salon in these past weeks. Uh, Your support at this time was uh, very crucial in helping me get all this done, and I cannot thank you enough. So, uh, in celebration of being back online and in my podcasting mode, I'm going to kick it off with a new recording of Terrence McKenna, one that's uh, never been on the net before, at, uh, at least as best as I can tell. This talk came to me from our fellow saloner, Kevin Espison, uh, who actually made a video recording of the event and uh, sent me a copy of it. And in uh, the follow-on podcast to this, I'll have more to say about Kevin. So uh, anyway, I've stripped out the audio part and we'll be playing it in just a moment, uh, at least the first hour of it. And the second hour will be coming out in my next podcast, which I'll get out as quickly as I can, hopefully tomorrow. I, uh, I think that this talk was uh, actually a free lecture that Terrence gave on the evening before the second annual Profits Conference, which was uh, held in early February of 1994 on the Hawaiian island of Maui. In the talk itself, uh, Terrence says that the title is Speaking the Unspeakable, but as you can already see, I have changed the title to better reflect the actual topic of this talk. And while I've heard him praise the value of these sacred medicines before, this, this may be his uh, most hard-hitting promotion of the importance of properly using these catalysts for the imagination at this particular time in human history. Now, in the interest of keeping these MP3 files to a manageable size, as I said, I'm breaking this recording into two podcasts, but I'm going to keep my own commentary to a minimum so as to uh, get it out to you as quickly as I can. Therefore, without any further ado, here once again is Terrence McKenna. Well, it's a pleasure to be uh, with you in Maui. I've been trying to figure out since the first of the year whether I was dead or not because I seem to be living in heaven. I just go from one uh, wonderful theme to the next. I was in Portugal the first two weeks of January doing a science fiction film. Flew from there to the revolt in Chiapas, home to do the mail, and then back to my home on the nearby larger and more volcanically active island to the east. And now I'm here with you this evening. Thanks to Robin Johnson and Gary who did the wonderful introduction, pleasant in its brevity. And I'm here to talk to you this evening about speaking about the unspeakable which seemed to leave uh, the field fairly broadly open for the last minute uh, adjustments. Speaking about the unspeakable, it's both a joke and uh, a pointer toward a very serious uh, set of subjects. First of all, the unspeakable is that which lies uh, beyond the domain of language. And when I titled the lecture, I was thinking of Wittgenstein, who mentioned the unspeakable, the things which exceed our grasp. The other meaning of the unspeakable is the things we'd rather not speak about, our dilemma, our history, and how hard it will be to create solutions to our dilemma. So I thought with those two um, understandings of the meaning of the unspeakable in place, I would launch myself into a kind of uh, meandering diatribe, which will go on for a while, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll entertain questions 
from the floor. So that's the basic, uh, that's the formula. I'm sure it's no news here that we are approaching uh, the third millennium, that a thousand years of Christian civilization is uh, percolating to its end, that we are on the brink of some kind of turning in the cosmic machinery. And though historians think of history as an endlessly fluctuating and trendlessly fluctuating process, in fact, I think for anyone with half an eye, it's clear that history is some kind of uh, self-consuming process that occurs in geological and biological time in a kind of instant. It is not something that can be built into the life of a planet for endless eons. It's a phase transition and it has the character of creating ever-expanding uh, adaptive effectiveness for the species that practices it, usually through technology. But this adaptive effectiveness ultimately becomes uh, toxic, no longer serves the endless expansion of population, the endless subduing <clears throat> of nature becomes counterproductive. And at that point, the feedback signals from the process of global civilization become signals indicating danger and time to shift to another gear, time to change the paradigm by which the society has directed itself. And Western civilization, through technological success, has become the dominant global civilization. So unlike the rise and fall of the Maya, which occurred in a kind of cultural and historical vacuum, our civilization touches everyone on this planet. We're involved in a species-wide crisis, and it's a crisis of adaptation and intelligence. If we can meet the crisis, if we can redesign the cultural machinery so that it can glide in to the new value system that a limited earth and an electronically activated population demand, then we can use the crisis as a stepping stone to further exploration of the universe, further evolution, further unfoldment. If we can't meet the challenge, then the fossil record makes clear that there is a place and a plan for those who can't cut the mustard. 95% <laughs> of all species that have ever lived on this planet are extinct. Nature is an engine for the production of extinct species. And if we are to evade that fate, then we have to rise to the challenge that our history deposits in our laps because we have been practicing maladaptive technologies, maladaptive ideologies for about 12,000 years now. Well, this is not news to anybody. This just sets the stage. <clears throat> My perspective on this is a little different from or planners or people who grapple with this because I believe that the answer to this dilemma and the answer to uh, the contradictions that history confronts us with is a deeper exploration of the psychedelic experience. And the psychedelic experience is something uh, incredibly alien to the, to the Western mind. It is in fact taboo. It is, in fact, 
one of these unspeakable subjects promised in the lecture title. It's possible to go from birth to the grave without ever having a psychedelic experience. It's not built into your biology the way orgasm or uh, sleep or hunger or something like that is. It's a physiological option that involves forming a symbiotic relationship with a plant or post-high technology with a substance either derived from a plant or probably structurally related to substances within plants. Consciousness appears to be, on one level, a materialistic phenomenon in that it springs from uh, the physical brain. It springs from the electrochemical processes that go on within organism. On another level, consciousness and the psychedelic experience seem to be a kind of angelic descent into the domain of matter, a kind of iridescence from another dimension that infuses materiality. This is a great uh, paradox, and it's a paradox that persists right down to the molecular level. Uh, psychopharmacologists know, for example, that by shifting a single atom on the ring structure of a chemically active molecule, it can be changed from being extremely psychoactive to being completely inert. Now, if this is not a proof that consciousness springs from the quantum mechanical level, I don't know what would be. So, what that means then, to me, is that matter itself has what Alfred North White had called an appetition for completion. Everything in the universe strives to transcend itself. Everything in the universe has what White had called an internal horizon of transcendence. And in the human organism, this internal transcendent horizon within historical times has been frustrated by ideologies, has been channeled in negative directions towards such phenomenon, uh, such phenomena as urbanism, male kingship, uh, monocultural agriculture, phonetic alphabets, so forth and so on. These cultural institutions, one by one, are the bricks that we have used to build ourselves into an impossible prison. Now, <clears throat> into this situation, about a hundred years ago, comes the news that there are Aboriginal people in various parts of the earth who are using plants to journey into invisible dimensions where divination, curing, and apparent violations of natural law are possible. You'll recall that in, I think it was 1888, Louis Lewin, the German pharmacologist, went to, of all places, uh, Cincinnati, <laughs> and scored 120 pounds of peyote, which he dutifully took back to Berlin and set to work upon and quickly isolated the active principle or it was isolated by a colleague of his that initiated the modern era of psychopharmacology and quickly um, harmaline in the 20s LSD in the 40s psilocybin and DMT in the 50s and then more exotic compounds were discovered. But as quickly as they were discovered, they were made illegal and they were professionally stigmatized so that scientific careers uh, were ruined if people chose to involve themselves in these substances. 
Well, now here's an interesting paradox. Science, which uh, claims a kind of universal objectivity, which claims a kind of God-given right to probe into all dimensions and domains of nature, actually grew very queasy at the possibility of chemical agents being used to study and elucidate consciousness. And I think that when we analyze this modern institutional reluctance to deal with these compounds, what we uncover is in fact the lost history of the human race and the secret of our transcendent nature, our uh, difference from the rest of animal nature is linked to the psychedelic compounds and so is our sexuality and so is our peculiar adaptive intelligence. This is the situation you see that we are half angels, half animals, half in the dimension of the rest of nature and half in a dimension which can barely be described, the dimension of globe-girdling information transfer networks, high technology, the elucidation of the inner structure of stars and atoms, a world created by mind, a world created by the operation of abstraction. And this is the great thing which we do. We take data and matter and we elaborate these things into constructs, either physical artifacts, machines, art galleries, cities, or ideological constructs, Marxism, feminism, Catholicism, Zoroastrianism. We seem to be the creature that can download the ideas, the platonic perfect forms of a higher dimension into the world of matter. And so where we are, there is an interfacing between the world of ordinary nature and some kind of transcendent force. And I really believe that history is the trail in the snow, if you will, of this journey toward a fusion of spirit and matter that the alchemical dream of the 16th century, which was the fusion of spirit and matter, was naively believed to be something that a single individual could achieve working alone in some Bavarian laboratory. This is not what it is, I think. I think human history is the alchemical process. The human organism is the prima materia. And our dreams are the goals that guide this process. And we have pursued this path for so long that there now is no going back. The only possibility now is a, what I call a forward escape. That means where you just put the pedal to the floor and close your eyes and go for it. Because there's no going back. And my interest in psychedelics arises from two sources. Number one, the clear evidence available to everyone that societies that use psychedelics practice a kind of dynamic equilibrium with the earth and with the environment. They are stable. That's one factor arguing for the psychedelic experience. The other factor, a much more personal factor, is that it's the only thing I've ever seen which would turn people around as fast as we have to turn around if we're to avoid the fatal momentum of our past mistakes. Because we inherit 
essentially a runaway freight train on a downhill slope. And, you know, they take and place us in the driver's seat and say, do something about human history. Well, no society can evolve faster than it can change its mind and its language. So, speaking about the unspeakable means stretching the envelope of what can be said when new things can be said, new plans can be laid, new directions can be found out of a crisis. And science has steered us deeply into the notion that nature is soulless and spiritless. And the practice of this idea has led us to the brink of catastrophe, global and species and ecological catastrophe. Meanwhile, these aboriginal societies have been journeying freely to and from the spirit realm through the use of plants for as many millennia as we have been wandering in the deserts of abstraction. Now, these two halves of the human family have to make common cause because the rainforest shaman and the Manhattan stockbroker are essentially in the same lifeboat with the same set of problems. A dissolving atmosphere, toxic oceans, overpopulation, commercialization of violence, uh, sexism, racism, you name it. These problems are global problems. And they are problems that will not be solved without an incredible leap of imagination. Psychedelics are catalysts for the human imagination. That very simply is what they are. Uh, it doesn't say they're good. It doesn't say they are bad. They will catalyze the perverse imagination with the same effectiveness that they will catalyze the Gaian responsible imagination. Nevertheless, if we do not avail ourselves of these tools, I think the, the, uh, the cultural enterprise is in quicksand and sinking quickly or a kind of sinking submarine. So how can we change our minds, redesign our value systems, redesign our languages quickly enough to avert some kind of global degradation of the quality of life that will leave our children the poorer well, the way to do this, I think, is to get connected up with the rest of nature. Nature is a seamless community of intentionality. Nature is a gene swarm covering the surface of the planet. Biological nature, I'm talking here, is a set of interlocking strategies and intents, the sole purpose of which is to one, survive, and to two, maintain creative openness. So not the case. I mean, things have gotten considerably worse since the Sermon on the Mount, for my money. <laughs> the only way back is through a direct experience of the sacral and unitary nature of being. This is a very difficult problem for us because experience is something that we have given away. We are consumers of experience handed down through a hierarchy that begins somewhere near Madison Avenue. 
a hierarchy of image production that causes all our values to be brought in from the outside as religions, as product fetishism, brand loyalty, ideologies. We consume these things the same way we consume petroleum and rice. What we have to do is begin to concentrate on the felt presence of immediate experience. This is what Western civilization has lost, is a sense of the felt presence of immediate experience. In other words, we have to live in the body. Ideology must serve feeling. Technology must serve intuition. What we're talking about here is a complete inversion of social values. We're talking about a feminizing of culture, a greening of culture, and a de-emphasis on mechanism, and a de-emphasis on uh, goals, the achievement of goals, over the style with which these goals are achieved. One of the books that I wrote was called The Archaic Revival, and I called it that because I can discern, or I delude myself into thinking I can discern, throughout the 20th century a very large cultural pattern, which is what I call the nostalgia for the archaic. It, it touches phenomena as diverse as Freudian and Jungian psychoanalysis, jazz, body piercing, rock and roll, uh, new age therapy, uh, scarification and tattoos, house music, what all these things have, abstract expressionism, surrealism, dada, what all these things have in common is a reverence for the irrational and the experiential, the tempos of the body. We are in the 20th century at last beginning to at least debate the possibility of setting off from Aristotelianism and the world of the Edwardian gentleman. And it's about time, I would say. It's the last possible moment before we will have any choice in the matter. And what I left off that list was uh, shamanism and psychedelic plants. Because when you begin to think about archaic life, about what it really meant, the shaman emerges as the paradigmatic figure. The shaman cures, the shaman travels in invisible dimensions, the shaman can rescue souls, the shaman can somehow violate ordinary space and time. And at the center of shamanism is the psychedelic experience. Now there's a lot of haggling about this in anthropology, but just to let you know where I'm coming from, I believe shamanism without psychedelics is shamanism on its way to becoming religion. Not all shamanisms in the world are psychedelic. Some rely on uh, ordeal, some rely on quote-unquote abnormal personalities. Uh, these are forms of shamanism that are drifting toward institutional religion. Shamanism is not, strangely enough, the product of cultural values alone. It's uh, a series of ideas that have been built up around an experience. An experience which most people in our society have never had. It's the experience of boundary dissolution, of the collectivity of planetary life, of the presence of strange and alien dimensions filled with intelligence and intent toward humanity. It is, in short, the world of pagan natural magic. And this is the world 
that beckons in the light of the failure of the cultural models of the last couple of thousand years. Now, it's a matter of great political controversy. Somehow, the changing of consciousness is deemed to be uh, threatening to the state. Now, why is that? Is the state somehow playing a shell game that would be exposed if people were to actually open their eyes? In what way does the expansion of consciousness threaten uh, industrial democracies? I think we need real answers to this. We like to believe we're a free society, but in fact, uh, this, is a, this is a game of puppet and puppeteer no different from the game that was played inside the Marxist societies so recently deceased. It is irrational for people to addict themselves to the consumption of products, to money fetishism, and to linear ideologies. All of this is irrational, but it's practiced with a vengeance inside the high-tech industrial democracies. I maintain that we have drifted very, very far from a viable social system, and that in order to return to a viable social system, we're going to have to revivify our archaic styles. This is going on all around us throughout the 20th century, as I said, in an unconscious fashion. But I'm suggesting that we do it in a conscious fashion and that we admit that hegemony, monotheism, uh, print-created culture, obsession with stuff, that all of these things have played us false. They do not satisfy. And what satisfies is authentic experience. And authentic experience has been made almost impossible inside the world of media-manipulated symbols and manufactured ideologies that constitutes the modern world. So what's required then is a radical act of disassociation from these value systems. And what that means is boundary-dissolving psychedelic intoxication. <laughs> allowing the Gaian agenda to manifest itself by dissolving the ego and by standing outside the structures of consumerist society. When this is done by large numbers of people, and I think the fact that we're here this evening means uh, that the agenda is proceeding on time under budget, when this is done, people will not tolerate the kind of human societies and the kind of uh, allocation of resources that we're witnessing today. Uh, the, the obscenity of great wealth in the presence of great poverty, the obscenity of further destruction of the earth in the presence of spreading deserts and cities, uh, the obscenity of the destruction of our educational system with the knowledge that our children require education more than anything else. All of these um, failures of will can be overcome if we can connect to our feelings. Because what we are is a person sitting in the corner of a room hitting themselves repeatedly on the head with a hammer. If we could feel what we were doing, we would stop instantly. <laughs> but we cannot feel what we're doing. We have ideologies, we have excuses, we have government spokesmen, committees, commissions, study groups, white papers, so forth and so on. It's perfectly obvious that Western civilization has shot its wad. It's perfectly obvious that Christianity has produced a nightmare of repression, of anti-human intolerance. 
It's perfectly obvious that the nuclear family is a cauldron for the production of neurosis and the employment of psychotherapists. <laughs> it's perfectly obvious that uh, the most destructive drugs we have discovered are peddled freely in every shopping center. It's perfectly obvious that the drugs of transcendence that connect us up to the earth are the drugs that are uh, those who govern us are most interested in repressing. We are living inside an impossible set of contradictions, no less impossible than the set of contradictions the people of the Soviet Union were asked to live under until very recently. How long can we tolerate business as usual. How long can people who drive Mercedes and send checks to Greenpeace twice a year content themselves with the idea that that is a sufficient response to a burning and dying planet? What we have to do, I think, is radicalize our point of view. And what that means is, first of all, a telescoping back, a telescoping back most people can't tell whether Joseph Goebbels served in the first or second Nixon administration. <laughs> most people have no sense of history at all. But when you, and this is a failure of education, plain and simple, but when you pull back 10,000 years, 100,000 years, a million years, a hundred million years, a billion years, then something emerges that is not taught in the schools, that is not recognized by science, that is never discussed and never mentioned. And that is that the further back in time you go, the simpler the universe becomes until finally you reach the extraordinary improbability of the Big Bang. This is a moment where the universe, for no reason, sprang from nothingness, according to science. Now notice that whatever you think about that hypothesis, it's the limit test for credulity. Do you understand what I mean? I mean, if you believe that, you can believe anything. That is the most unlikely proposition the human brain can generate. And yet, science holds its forth as axiom one. Axiom one. The universe sprang from nothing for no reason. Well, from that moment on, the universe has been complexifying itself as it cooled. First, it's a, it's a plasma of pure electrons. Then, as it cools, atoms form. Uh, electrons can settle into to stable orbits around atomic nuclei. As atomic systems aggregate into stars, fusion occurs. Heavier elements are cooked out, among them carbon. Four-valent carbon allows a new world of complexity to emerge, the world of uh, organic chemistry. Out of that possibility emerge long-chain polymers. Out of that possibility emerge self-replicating molecular systems, and out of that comes primitive life, and out of that complex life, and out of that land-based life, and out of that mammals, and out of that primates, and out of that human beings sitting around the campfire, chewing on reindeer hides and chipping flint, and out of that our own immensely complex, planet-girdling, planet-agonizing civilization. Okay, but now notice something about this um, um, Notice something about this set of declensions that I just ran through. It's that each advance into complexity occurs more quickly than the process which preceded it. So that, you know, it took a long, long time for stars to aggregate. And then it took a long, long time for life to appear. Once life appears, the cosmic machine quickens its pace. 
Once the conquest of the land appears, it turns another turn of the spiral and quickens its pace. Once you arrive at human beings, you arrive in the domain of very rapid processes, even from the point of view of biology. Uh, you know, some people have a great enthusiasm for believing that there were high civilizations 50,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago on the earth. I don't buy into that at all. I think the miracle of the human adventure is how new everything is. There are uh, people teaching in respectable universities who believe language is 35,000 years old. I mean, try to wrap your mind around that. That means it's, it's as artificial a thing as the electric toothbrush. Language we're talking about here. Uh, we are apparently the cutting edge of an ever-accelerating, concrescent process. And this is what I was referring to at the beginning of the talk when I said history cannot go on forever. History represents a phase in the development of something. And the conquest of the land represented an earlier phase in the development of that same thing. The long, the hundreds of millions of years of life in the ocean, yet a longer, earlier phase of this same process of emergence. Now, the pace of the cosmic drama has quickened. It rests in us. In the last hundred years, there has been more scientific and cultural advance, let's make that scientific advance, than in the previous hundred thousand years. This acceleration leads any rational person to the conclusion that eventually we are going to enter into domains of novelty of such short duration that they will consume history. And I believe that this is what the psychedelic experience actually reveals, that uh, you, know, you can talk about the Jungian unconscious, you can talk about the maps of the Witoto or the Warane, but that the really the most effective map of the psychedelic domain is, strange to say, a mathematical map. That consciousness is the conquest of dimensionality. Biology is the conquest of dimensionality. The evolution of organs of locomotion and coordinated eyesight and so forth, these are uh, devices to propel us through three-dimensional space. The mind, in its ability to coordinate data and anticipate situations, is a kind of transtemporal organ. It is coordinating us in time as well as space. We are growing toward a kind of hyperspatiality. And this is a drama of universal import because it is all biology that participates in this. Now this represents a radical change of view to what the myth of our civilization is. The myth of our civilization is that the universe began a long time ago it will be consumed in entropic heat death a long, long time in the future. We are on an ordinary planet, around an ordinary star, in an ordinary galaxy, in a universe of hundreds of millions of such galaxies. In other words, it's put down, put down, put down, put down. A minimalizing of our importance. We are no more, in the view of science, than fortunate spectators to a cosmic drama that knows and cares nothing about us. I don't believe this. I don't think the evidence of the psychedelic experience supports it. I think that the universe is an engine for the production of novelty, ever quicker, ever faster, ever denser. And that at this moment, so far as we know, so far as we know, in this universe, we, the human species, our civilization, this evening, right now, is the most complex organization, system, organism in existence. Therefore, somehow, the fate 
of the cosmic intent rests with us. We are not without responsibility in this situation. Somehow, the next step, the next advancement into novelty depends on our um, being a smooth and doubtful conduit for its emergence. And so, as a global civilization, we can no longer afford the luxury of an unconscious <laughs> mind. I mean, when you can pull down the fusion processes that light the stars, when you can pull that down on the cities of your enemies, when you can uh, sequence the DNA, when you can map the heart of the atom, then it is entirely inappropriate to have an unconscious mind because the power that is given unto you is a kind of godlike Promethean power. So how can we switch on the lights on our animal nature and draw ourselves toward the angelic destiny that wants to happen? Well, I think it's very simple. We have to decondition ourselves from culture. We are sick. We require medical intervention, immediate medical intervention to uh, attempt to intervene on what is a galloping cancerous state of neurosis, the growth and spread of ego. Ego is like a calcareous growth in the psyche of human beings. And if it is not treated, it creates the kind of society that we have. A society based on hierarchy, male dominance, accumulation of physical goods, suppression of the weak by the strong. This is the kind of society that is created when those values are pushed. This is why the psychedelics are so socially sensitive, because they dissolve deconditioning. And Every culture is a, is a scam. Every culture is a lie, a shell game run by weasels for the amusement of rubes. And if you don't want to be a weasel or a rube, then you need to inform yourself of how the shell game works and what lies beyond the carnival midway of civilized values. And the way to do that is to go back to the plants, to go back to the original gnosis. Because it, it isn't simply that there is some magic in perturbing the chemistry of the brain with psychedelics. Why should that uh, confer wisdom or insight or anything else? It only can do that if beyond the deconditioning there is a wholeness waiting there is a mystery to be revealed. And I think it's the mystery of the guy in mind. History is what happens to you when you lose touch with the guy in mind, with the feminine, nurturing, planetary matrix that is the atmosphere and the ocean currents and the biota of the earth. Well, how could we have fallen so far how could we have gotten into a mess like this? I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Man's fall, what is it? Is it real? Are we still a pristine expression of the will and beauty of nature? Or have we somehow sullied ourselves, somehow fallen from the track? And trying to think as a biologist, an evolutionary thinker, so forth and so on, Here's my conclusion based on uh, a lifetime of thinking about this, traveling around, getting loaded, reading, dealing with the data. All primates, and we are primates, all primates have what are called dominance hierarchies. This means the long-fanged, hard-bodied young males kick everybody around. Mm -hmm. The females 
the youngs, the juveniles, the homosexuals, everybody takes their marching order from the male dominators. And we, as we sit here in this room, are deeply and terribly afflicted with these attitudes. But I maintain this has not always been the case. And our peculiar position in nature has to do with a kind of evolutionary accident. Here's what it is. And as I go through it, I hope you understand. It's an effort to solve one of the great problems of evolutionary biology, which is, why was it that within a period of time no more than two and a half million years, the human brain size doubled? Uh, Lumholtz, who is an evolutionary biologist of the academic mold, calls the evolution of the human brain the most explosive transformation of a major organ of a higher animal in the entire fossil record. Well now this is a great embarrassment for evolutionary theory because notice this is the organ which created the theory of evolution in the first place. So for it to be inexplicable within the terms of that theory is a little alarming to those who have a big stake in all of this. I maintain that by analyzing objectively what psychedelics do to us, we can understand not only our origins, but our predicament. And here's the scenario. Like all animal species, we reached a kind of evolutionary climax in the canopies of the rainforests of tropical Africa five to six million years ago, our ancestors. Fruititarian, insect-eating, complex pack signaling as an antecedent to language, and there we rested. Except that the dynamics of the planet dictated that those rainforests would shrink in size and be replaced by grasslands, and we came under nutritional pressure. When an animal comes under nutritional pressure, it has two choices. It can starve to death and go extinct, or it can begin to experiment with uh, new foods. The reason most animals don't ordinarily experiment with foods is because that kind of experimentation leads to exposure to mutagenic chemicals, and that creates mutation, which is generally lethal. Faced with extinction and starvation, we began to experiment with the new vegetables that we encountered in the grasslands of Africa. And in that same grassland environment, ungulate mammals, uh, bison, primitive cattle, so forth and so on, were also evolving. And the dung of those animals is the preferred environment for certain species of mushrooms that elaborate psilocybin. I maintain Psilocybin is the missing key to understanding human emergence. The missing link is not a transitional skeleton. The missing link is an environmental factor of some sort. And here's how I think it worked. Psilocybin in small doses uh, increases visual acuity. This has been shown in laboratory situations with graduate students and other test animals. <laughs> Visual acuity is improved with small doses of psilocybin. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that an improvement in visual acuity would have a tremendous impact on a hunting-gathering animal in a situation of nutritional stress. It means more successful hunting. It means more nutrition and protein available for offspring. It means raising one's offspring to reproductive age with greater success than other members of the group that are not using psilocybin. So there is the, the thin wedge in that psilocybin, un, perhaps unconsciously integrated into the diet, gives a slightly increased success at food acquisition. At higher doses, psilocybin creates what's called, and all CNS stimulants, create what's called arousal. This means this is how you feel after you have two double cappuccinos. 
you know, pacing around, scanning the environment. And in highly sexed animals like primates, in the male it means erection. So it becomes then a, a promoter of increased sexual activity. What primatologists like to call more successful instances of copulation. That's a second factor tending to outbreed members of the group not using psilocybin. Then, at still higher levels, hunting is out of the question. <laughs> Whoopi is out of the question. And you're just nailed to the ground by the firelight, writhing in the ecstasis of hallucinogenic visions that unfolds around you. A, a situation that, to us, with all our sophistication, Husserl, Heidegger, Michael Jackson, the whole thing, we are as in awe of that as those proto-human beings must have been. So there it is. It's a three-stage process. Better success at hunting, greater expression of sexuality and outbreeding of non-psilocybin-using members of the population, and then dissolution of boundaries into ecstasy. And this is the important one because, because the thing that distinguishes our civilization and our lifestyle and our telos is ego. We believe that the free democratic individual is the highest expression of human evolution on this planet. We have deified the ego. But notice that the ego is one, fragile, and two, it exists by definition of boundaries. My house, my job, my lover, my fortune, your house, your lover, your fortune. Ego means we define boundaries, the very thing that the psychedelics erode. And I believe that the, the sexual arousal and the boundary dissolution, when poured together in a social context in the high Paleolithic, created a society based on orgiastic sex and incredibly tight community values. Because one of the consequences of an orgiastic style is men cannot trace lines of male paternity. Therefore, men do not have children in the ordinary sense. Children belong to the group. And loyalty, then, is transferred to the group. It is not transferred to the family unit. And there was a moment, 10,000 years, 20,000 years, 100,000 years, a window when on the plains of Africa, under the influence of psilocybin and a non-hierarchical, orgiastic, nomadic society, we created poetry, drama, philosophy, higher values, altruism, courage, self-sacrifice, all of the values that we call human and transcendental were created in that environment. And then, and then, uh, no more than 15 to 20,000 years ago, the very forces which created that partnership paradise destroyed it. And what were those forces? Nothing more than the continued drying of the African continent. And the mushrooms began to disappear, began to become seasonal, began to be located only in the rain shadows of mountains. And when the availability of psilocybin began to decline, the old primate programming, which had never been removed from the animal, re-emerged. The formation of dominance hierarchies re-emerged. It must have been an awful, awful time. I mean, if many, many generations could be compressed into one, it would have been a time where people would have said, we don't seem to love each other anymore. 
We seem to have no spirit of community. We seem to have become competitive. We're now struggling over land and food and women and social position. Uh, a brutalizing of life occurred at that critical juncture when agriculture was invented as a response to further drying, when the huge database about nature that the hunter-gatherers had created was dumped in favor of the very limited database of the monocultural agriculturalists, and male hierarchy, male dominance, kingship, walled cities, an end to nomadism, uh, slavery, all of these institutions emerged in roughly a thousand to fifteen hundred years in the Middle East and across North Africa. And that is the sad set of circumstances of which we are the heirs, many generations removed. So we are like dysfunctional children. Something terrible happened to us in the childhood of our intelligence. We lost our connection to the Gaian matrix, to the goddess mother of the earth who gives coherency to life. And when the connection was lost, we fell into history. It was a perverse thing. People became frantic to preserve the mushrooms and they created strategies such as pickling them in honey. The problem with that is honey itself can change into a psychoactive compound, fermented alcohol. This creates a completely different set of cultural values. Alcohol promotes uh, an inflated sense of verbal facility at the same time that it lowers boundaries to social cueing. Go to any singles bar on a Friday night and you will see this in action. It, cre it promotes a further brutalization of culture. So this, to my mind, explains our obsession with substances. Why it is that we addict and addict and addict. It's because we are looking for something. Just like a kitten that will suck on your armpit or your gloves because it was weaned too early, we're willing to try anything to try and get a certain satisfaction. So, you know, heroin, hang gliding, ketamine, you name it, it's all out there. Marxism, sexism, sadomasochism, whatever. None of it will satisfy because none of it is the original thing that we're looking for. The original thing we are looking for, I think, is the, the state of mind induced by endohallucinogens, specifically psilocybin. And we need to have a cultural dialogue about this. There is no other point of view. In other words, nobody has a good story about how we got here, how we emerged out of human uh, prototypes so quickly. It must have been a dietary factor. It must have been a dietary factor that put extraordinary pressure on the neuro-linguistic systems of the evolving human brain. Psilocybin fits the profile. It was available in that environment at the right time, in the right quantity. And I maintain, you know, we're not simply solving here a kind of abstract question about human origins. We are also pointing the way toward answers. Because until we return to these archaic folkways, shamanism, hallucinogenic intoxication, honoring of the feminine, dissolution of boundaries, uh, so forth, re-tribalizing of social relations, so forth and so on, we are going to continue to drift toward extinction. So it's time to start speaking about the unspeakable. It's time to articulate these options. It's possible that we're going to sink into the quicksand of extinction with the answer clutched in our hand. That would be a tragedy too much to bear. I mean, it's one thing to think there are no answers. It's quite another to die with the answer in your hand. I mean, that's just sheer shit-brain stupidity. So, what must be done is 
the psychedelic meme must be given respectability. It must be outed. It must be surfaced. People of intelligence whose lives have been touched by these things have to begin to witness it. This is how gay people got respect. It's how people of color got respect. They're not handing rights out in this society, in case you didn't notice. The only way you are given your rights is if you demand them. And the idea that plants should be illegal and that the evolution and exploration of one's own mind should be of interest and uh, regulated by the state is obscene, absurd, ridiculous. intolerable. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, uh, <laughs> there's really not much you can add to that last statement. And when you think of all the politicians who are still very much fighting a war against the consciousness of people who use non-prescription, non-corporate controlled medicines... Well, uh, those politicians are just gutless obscenities, I guess. Uh, at least they are in my book. But uh, hey, that's just my opinion, and I realize that yours may be different, which uh, is what makes the world go around, as my sainted mother used to say. Now, as I said in my introduction, I'm going to keep these closing remarks to a very brief minimum in this podcast so that I can get the next part of this talk out to you right away. However, for all of my compatriots in the Occupy movement, I first want to say well done on all of the actions everywhere around the world on May Day, and I'm glad that our activities are more out in the open once again. But I would also be remiss not to mention the fact that about midway in the part of the talk that we just now listened to, it seemed to me that Terrence was giving a speech that would fit right into any general assembly in the movement. You know, he saw the big picture quite early back in 1994, and uh, fortunately, now more people are waking up to that same reality every day. So, press on! And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>